So Helen and Stephanie are offering us papers today on the theme of politics and conflicts. Um, Helen Mathers will be speaking first. Um, she's an experienced author. Um, Patron Saint of Prostitutes is her fourth published history book. She's also written several articles on Josephine Butler. Um, Helen is a professional historian with a PhD from the University of Sheffield. Um, she's taught many courses on Victorian women's history and is proud to be a long-standing associate lecturer for the Open University. Um, her students are of all ages, which is fantastic, um, and come from all kinds of backgrounds, which is always great to hear. Um, her website, if you would like to check it out, is <laughs> josephinebutlerpage.com. And Helen will be offering us a paper today, Self-Sensitive Josephine Butler's Attitudes to Biography and Autobiography. Thanks very much. That's great. Um, great to see all of you here. Um, and, um, well, Josephine Butler um, probably needs no introduction to many people, but just in case, um, this is a, her, her, her official portrait as the leader of the Ladies' Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts. Um, that campaign started at New Year 1870, um, and it was a campaign to repeal the acts which um, allowed the police to round up prostitutes and, um, um, and examine them forcibly to see if they had a contagious disease, i.e. a sexually transmitted disease like syphilis or gonorrhea. Um, and if they did, then they could be incarcerated for several months until they were deemed to be cured. Um, and this was one of the first ever feminist campaigns in this country. It was, it was definitely a, a, ladies, a women's campaign about a women's issue, about women's bodies. Um, and it was also successful because the acts were repealed after a campaign of uh, 16 years. Um, that's not the only campaign that Josephine Butler actually took, uh, uh, led in her life. Um, I, I'll just mention one other which um, is relevant to what I'm going to say. Um, and that's a campaign she was involved in in 1885 against um, child prostitution and child sexual abuse in London. Um, and in that campaign, she collaborated with a number of people, but particularly a journalist called William Stead, who, um, who um, uh, was a, an editor the, of the, the, of the Pall Mall Gazette. And he wrote a series of very hard-hitting articles called The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon. And, um, and as a result of those articles exposing what was going on among uh, and the treatment of young girls by much older men um, in London, um, the, the direct result of that was the raising of the age of consent from 13 to 16 in the summer of 1885. Um, Josephine Butler was a prolific writer. She published many books and pamphlets about her campaigns um, and no less than five biographies, including um, biographies of her father, her husband, and her sister. And in those books, she gave many details of her own life and, and that of her family. Um, but she never... Um, wanted and never agreed to write an autobiography. Um, so the first part of my talk is going to be about her attitudes to autobiography and secondly 
um, about her attitudes to biography, but the, the autobiography issue comes first. Now, Stead, who I've already described to you, um, the editor of the Pall Mall Gazette, he um, tried to commission a, a Butler autobiography. Um, and she refused at the time, saying, I could not do it for anything, not for £50,000, because I hate the very appearance of egotism and I feel almost a disgust of speaking of myself. Even though she had severe money worries at the time um, and Stead was offering her a generous advance, she refused then and nothing could persuade her later on to write an autobiography. Now, at the time, Josephine, at the time Stead made this request and this offer to her, Josephine Butler had just been um, widowed. It was 1890, um, and her devoted husband, George Butler, had, had died a few months earlier. Um, I've just got a couple of pictures of Joseph, Josephine Butler wearing her mourning clothes, her black dress and um, white veil. Um, and the other one on the right shows her similarly dressed, but also in a very familiar pose, writing. Um, so, so the timing of Stead's offer was pretty bad, as bad as it could have been, really, because she, she didn't want to write about herself at that time. She, she wanted to write about her husband. Um, and in her mind, a biography of him was much more important than anything that she should write about herself, or that's what she was saying anyway. She, she, um, she wanted to acknowledge her husband's support for her campaigns um, and what it had cost him, because she'd often been away from home for weeks at a time. Um, he had become the main carer for their three sons, um, his career almost certainly as a result of her campaign. He was um, the headmaster of a, a school in Liverpool um, and the governors didn't take too well to the headmaster's wife conducting a public campaign on behalf of prostitutes. So um, what she said about this biography was that it would be a tribute to his character and, quote, an act of justice and restitution. That phrase suggests a degree of guilt about the effects of her campaign on his life. That's despite the fact that he hardly ever uh, complained um, and, and in fact had supported it from the start. Um, and also that during the last, the previous, the last five years of his life, she'd really given up a lot of her campaigning in order to look after him when he was ill. But she said, um, the world does not yet know how, next to God himself, my dear companions, inner life and heart were the fountain from which I drew so much life for myself and the work. That's a letter, as you can see, she wrote in 1891, which is while she was writing the biography. Um, especially after his death, but also later in his life, she constantly played up George's role in her campaigns. She would speak, for example, of our campaign. 
But although he played this supportive role, it was her campaign and she alone decided to take it on. George was simply asked to give his consent to it. The, the, so the, the, the biography was uh, an act of restitution. It also helped to assuage her grief. So to her daughter-in-law, she wrote, my longing to see him almost breaks my heart. Um, and she worried about whether I shall be able to write something worthy about him. So all of this was on her mind when Stead asked her to write the autobiography. However, only a cursory glance at the actual published biography of George shows that she did in fact take the opportunity to write about her own life at the same time as she was writing about George's. So the biography actually reveals a great deal about Josephine Butler's life. The, 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 their very close and very happy marriage is revealed through the letters they sent to each other. Their family life is described in detail. Um, not only their three sons, but also the tragic death of their young daughter. Um, and her own career takes centre stage on many occasions. I'll just give you two examples. One of them is her very first visit to prostitutes. Um, when she went alone to the Liverpool workhouse, um, down to the cellars to sit among destitute and miserable women who were incarcerated there. Um, and she describes this experience with these women in detail in, in her biography of George. Uh, another one is, her is the struggle she had to accept um, what she saw as her call to lead the campaign against the Contagious Diseases Acts. Um, and it's obvious why that was such a struggle, because she knew if she took on that campaign how unpopular it would make her, not only because she was a woman going out into the public sphere to campaign on a political issue, which was bad enough, but also because the issue was just so um, horrendous and so shocking to her audiences. No woman had ever done this before. So that's why it was a struggle. Um, and this is a couple of quotes um, of the things that she wrote in George's biography about her struggle to, to decide. Like Jonah, when he was charged by God with a commission which he could not endure to contemplate, I fled from the face of the Lord. I worked hard at other things, good works as I thought, with a kind of half-conscious hope that God would accept that work and not require me to go farther and run my heart against the naked sword which seemed to be held out. And I've got a second quote which is actually from a diary she wrote and which she quotes in the, in, in the biography. And it's a prayer. I pray thee, O God, to give me a deep, well-governed and lifelong hatred of all such injustice, tyranny and cruelty. This is perhaps the very work, the very mission I longed for years ago and saw coming afar off like a bright star. But seen near as it approaches, it is so dreadful, so difficult, so disgusting that I tremble to look at it. 
Just as an aside, you will see from these quotes that Josephine Butler was not only a feminist, but also a devout evangelical Christian. Um, and in her mind and in her life, those two were indivisible um, and both fed on each other. I don't have time to go into that now, or, um, but I, I just, um, it's obvious from what you're reading, and also that Josephine Butler's attitude to um, the Bible and to Christian faith was extremely radical, otherwise she couldn't have accommodated these two views. Okay, so that's an aside. So in, in these quotes and, and, in, and in that section of the book, she goes on wrestling with her conscience until finally she decides to take on the challenge. Only then does she tell George, so this is a personal struggle outside of George's e experience. She told him afterwards, and it takes up three pages of her husband's biography. Um, and it's one example, as I said, among many, of personal revelation she gives in the book. Now, of course, to future generations of historians and biographers, this has been an absolute godsend, because without those kind of personal revelations, um, we wouldn't know s nearly so much about her motivation and the reasons why she did things. And yet, apparently, she would never have published them except with the justification that it was part of her husband's story. But in reality, of course, this book was a joint biography. And later on, she herself came to see this, but her son, their eldest son, recognised that it would be from the start and he actually said to her, while she was writing this biography, that it should be a little of our life's history. Do not fear, dear mother, to make it something of an autobiography. You can hardly help doing so because father's life and yours were so completely one. Um, so that was her son's view. Um, and clearly... You know, even if she didn't intend to do that, she did actually do that. Um, and then, but then later on, um, in 1903, she, looking back, um, and maybe justifying what she'd done, she wrote to a friend. My husband and I were singularly united through all our life. We worked together, as you know, and therefore it was impossible for me to write a life of him without its being, in a measure, an autobiography. It could not be otherwise, for we could not be separated. So in both these quotes, the one from her son and the one that she, she gives here, she uses the word autobiography. Um, she, gives, she gives a number of reasons in various quotes for the reason that she does include reflections about herself and her own feelings. But surely the one that she doesn't state, but which must have been the most powerful, is just a desire to tell her own story. How otherwise to explain the great personal and emotional detail that she goes into, quoting her own diaries and her own prayers even? She, By the time she wrote this, this biography, she had endured a great struggle at a, at a cost to herself above all. And that struggle is represented in this book. 
It also comes out in other publications, especially the history of the campaign she wrote later, um, called Personal Recollections of a Great Crusade. There's actually so much material when you start to look at some of her books that, that after her death, um, a couple called George and Lucy Johnson actually compiled a selection of her writings about herself into what they called Josephine Butler, an, an autobiographical memoir. Now, she didn't authorise that. It was done after her death. But they used only published sources in order to, to, to create really quite a substantial volume of, ref of Josephine Butler's reflections on her own life. So there is this autobiographical memoir, but it was compiled by other people. Um, so coming back to her statement to Stead, I hate the very appearance of egotism and I feel almost a disgust of speaking of myself. You have to ask, why did she say that, say that when quite clearly, you know, she actually was very happy and indeed needed to talk about herself. Um, and I suppose that's the theme of this conference as I saw it and why I really wanted to take part in this because it struck me that this was really interesting. Um, and we can observe it and try to explain it, but, you know, you, I don't have the answers. I came to discuss it and see what you think as well. But there's definitely a sense in which she gave herself permission to speak about her own life and feelings when she was ostensibly writing a book about someone else or a history of her campaign. Not just, and not in, 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 in the case of Butler's, in the case of George Butler's book, it, it was a biography with letters, which was the ultimate Victorian tribute to the deceased. And Butler produced that kind of volume, not only for her husband, but also her father and sister. And in all of them, there are many unabridged letters, which are very revealing. Okay, so that's the end of my section. Does anybody have a tissue? <laughs> I've got a runny nose here. I do apologise. entirely failed to so much think about my notes and my slide and think about my notes excuse me right that's great thank you um so part two is about um um biography her attitude to biography and i've just got a couple of slides as a kind of into inter introduction to this because this is later on in her life when she starts to really think about whether a biography should be written of her um and it shows her in 1897, which is less than 10 years before her death, um, and with her family. Obviously, her husband was dead by then. He, he dies in 1890. But her three sons are shown, um, Stanley, George, who was the eldest, and Charlie on the right. Um, and the other people in the picture are their spouses and children. And Josephine, you can see, sort of a bit huddled up in the middle. But that's a very characteristic pose because... I've got another couple of pictures of her at more or less the same time. One is the um, portrait by G.F. Watts, which was done in 1895, now in the National Portrait Gallery. 
um, which she didn't like because she said it showed the signs of suffering too much. But actually, when you compare it with the previous photograph, it's pretty lifelike, I think. And also, it's very similar to a sketch which was done of her by a friend, um, Emily Ford. So this is Josephine in her later years. Um, still very strong, very independent, but considerably physically diminished. Um, and um, at that stage of her life, she decided that she did not want a biography of herself ever to be written. And that's what she said. My children and grandchildren would be grieved if any life of me were written as uniquely and solely connected with our abolitionist work. It would be very one-sided and it would be most unpleasant to my children to have a book written which identified me with the crusade and with nothing else. We have had so much bright family life that the abolitionist crusade seems to become, in comparison, quite secondary to us. Um, and she said exactly the same in a letter to her sons, which forms part of her will. Um, this is an important quote because it shows again Butler's determination to acknowledge the importance of her family life. And there's also an immediate context by this time, 1903, because she had fallen out with her eldest son, George, who you saw in the previous photo. Um, he had always found her campaign hard to accept with its, with its knock-on effect on the family. Um, and also, he blamed the campaign for his mother's failure to visit his wife before she died. Um, she was in that picture, but she died um, in 1901 after the birth of her third child. And Josephine never got to see her during six weeks when she was lingering. Um, and actually, it was probably because she was ill. But um, George thought she just hadn't made the effort, um, and he never forgave her for that. And I think she's most often thinking about George's, her son George's, needs and her relationship with him and not the other two sons so much when she writes this will saying about the importance of her family life and the much lesser importance of the campaign um, and at the same time that she wrote this will she wrote to friends asking them to destroy all letters which quote have any allusions to my family or private life and she told her friends that in her will she had quote charged my sons not to allow any biographer uh, any biography of me ever to be published she knew that obituaries were inevitable but she disliked and deprecated the kind of biography which probed the inner life and often produced an untrue or overly flattering picture well as a result of this request to her friends some people did destroy their letters from her but many did not do so, clearly, because otherwise we would not have now the wealth of correspondence with many friends which does survive. Um, however, no private papers or letters were used in a publication for many years. Um, after his mother died in 1906, George Butler received many requests to write biographies, and he refused them all. Um, the first biography that did come out uh, was not until 1928, so 22 years after her death, and it was to mark the centenary of her birth. 
and that was written by Millicent Fawcett. But it still used only published material. The first using family letters was published by her grandson, A.S.G. Butler, in 1954, so just about 50 years after her death. That was the first time that any unpublished letters were used. However, the family letters, many of them, did actually survive. They weren't destroyed, and nor were many of her personal papers, including quite a few diaries. And for this, I think we have to thank her sons, and especially George, who preserved them and deposited them in the Northumberland archives. So her sons, particularly George and Stanley, actually flouted her wishes uh, expressed in her will. And why did they do that? Well, as a biographer, I've obviously you know, pondered about this. Um, and I think it's because they wanted to see a book which actually reflected the bright family life which, which Butler spoke of. And paradoxically, that story could never be told if personal papers were destroyed. The public life can always be told from public documents and campaign correspondence. So when I, when I was working on, on her biography and feeling that Obviously, she would not like the quoting of her private diaries and letters. Um, but I also thought that if it was possible to write a balanced book about her, which did actually talk about her family life and her campaigns, then shouldn't that be attempted? And isn't that actually what she wanted? Uh, it may be very self-serving. I, I mean, it is. It is self-serving. But I also do think that what she asked for her requests actually don't really add up. They're very contradictory. So, and I, I, I also do think that the fact that these letters, diaries, and personal papers exist in the archives means that her sons thought differently um, and that the Butler archives would be far more silent without their efforts to preserve her memory in every way. Thank you. for such a fantastic presentation. Um, we'll now have a paper from Stephanie Wolterton, who's an independent scholar. Um, she has an MSc in social research and is currently writing a biography of William, the, William Pitt the Younger's private life. Um, her website is theprivatelifeofpitt.com and she's on Twitter at at um, a noonday eclipse. Um, and uh, Stephanie will be offering us a paper. My apologies. I shall burn all. Um, the mysterious link between Elizabeth Williams and Lady Hester Stanhope. Okay. Apologies for no audio visuals, but this was sort of last minute. Um, I just found out I was given this paper about two weeks ago. Um, anyway, this paper examines the mysterious connection between Lady Hester Stanhope, the unconventional early 19th century female traveler and beloved niece of the British Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger and Miss Elizabeth Williams, a young woman originally in Pitt's household. In an article from Notes and Queries from 1880, there's a small but highly intriguing little snippet written by an anonymous person. It says, quote, William Pitt, son of the Earl of Chatham, 
A book entitled The Private Life of William Pitt is said to exist. Where can it be obtained? Was there any truth in the report that he was privately married? Who was Miss Williams and where was she born and christened? She's said to have been at his deathbed and subsequently to have accompanied Lady Hester Stanhope to Syria. Are any of the descendants of William Pitt's private secretary, Mr. Adams, still living? And if so, where can they be communicated with?" Unquote. This extract is ambiguous as it isn't clear whether it implies that Miss Williams could have been Pitt's daughter or his secret wife. Now, as we know, William Pitt the Younger never actually married. In spite of such an opinion, um, what is known is that Elizabeth Williams was born in St. Margaret's Parish in Westminster on August 3rd, 1785, and she and her younger sister, Louisa Jane, were in Pitt's households at Holwood, Downing Street, and his subsequent rented properties from at least 1797 until his death in 1806, although it is highly probable that they were known to Pitt prior to that time. Um, I've examined numerous bills in the National Archives in, in the UK, um, which confirm that Pitt paid for the two girls' board, living expenses, and education. Um, one such bill um, for the quarter from September to Christmas um, 1797 was for a, board's, a quarter's board education um, for Miss E and L Williams, and it also includes um, uh, writing and ciphering two pairs of shoes mended, two new greatcoats for the girls, um, a month's vacation, and a servant. That's just one such um, example. Um, interestingly, Elizabeth was not always listed as a servant, however. Um, in fact, at least up until 1801, she was not listed in any servants' lists, despite the fact that she was in his household. Um, she was um, listed as a housemaid in 1806, and she was present at Putney when Pitt died, died there. It is difficult to determine the exact relationship or affinity between William Pitt and Elizabeth Williams. It is believed they were the daughters of one of his servants, either William Williams or Edward Williams, um, which were, they were both in the, the employ of the Pitt family. But why these two girls, um, why were they singled out, as it were, to live and effectively be brought up by Pitt? Uh, Pitt was a kind master to all of his servants, and there are records of him procuring jobs and minor positions elsewhere for his former servants and others. But he also didn't raise their children, as far as the surviving records show. Pitt was a godfather to many children, um, and one of his wards was Lord Haddo, later Earl of Aberdeen. Uh, nevertheless, there are no existing accounts in the archives of Pitt paying for any other person's education, servant, or otherwise, except for Miss Elizabeth and Louisa Williams. They clearly meant something to Pitt. Um, Pitt was never financially flush, um, and indeed, by the time of his resignation in 1801, his debts reached over 40,000 pounds. That's like two million in today's money. Pitt never gave much thought to his finances, but resigning a portion, even a small one, to, of his income to the education of female servants appears significant. Soon after Pitt's death in an undated letter from either late 1806 or early 1807 marked private, Lady Hester Stanhope, his, his niece, wrote to Pitt's last private secretary, William Dacker Adams, about an upcoming domestic marriage she helped to arrange for one of the servants under her protection. Dacker Adams was familiar with the servant in question. Lady Hester writes to him, she says, quote, I must now tell you that I consider one of my children disposed of. Louisa has had a very advantageous offer at Malta and only waits my consent to marry. The man bears an excellent character and is very good looking and about five and 20, 25 years old. Now I hope you'll wish me joy and admire my speculation for I sent the girl abroad on purpose to marry. 
as she, Louisa, was infinitely too well educated for a servant, but not having a shilling in the world, it was difficult to know what to do with her, unquote. What is significant is how Lady Hester Stanhope refers to the Williams sisters in her letter to William Decker Adams. She calls them her children. Uh, Lady Hester obviously cared a great deal for the two girls, but even Lady Hester acknowledged that Louisa was too infinitely well-educated for a servant of her kind of station. A marriage prospect came up for Louisa, and Lady Hester was happy to consent for her to be sent to Malta on purpose to get her out of England. Um, Louisa Jane Williams married uh, the man John David in 1807 at St. Uh, Paul's Anglican Cathedral in Malta, and they settled there. Now, Charles Lewis Marion is best known as Lady Hester Stanhope's physician and biographer, uh, memoirist. He published her posthumous memoirs in the 1840s, several years after her death, despite the severe invective that Lady Hester had unleashed in those conversations against many well-known politicians and personages, including members of her own family. Later in 1861, Marion went back through his papers again, which I've seen, and he took the liberty of scratching out quite a few um, of his old notes on Lady Hester and Elizabeth Williams. In the 21st century, hardly anything survives in public archives relating to these women. Nevertheless, in my re um, research on the mysterious connection between the as she was called, maid, secretary, and female companion, Elizabeth Williams, to both William Pitt and Lady Hester Stanhope, I have con uh, increasingly come across written evidence which suggests that there is more to this than meets the eye, and more to this than potentially survives to this day. Elizabeth Williams, as we know, stayed on with Lady Hester Stanhope following Pitt's death and moved with her first to Montague Square in London, later traveling with Lady Hester in seclusion to Wales, and in 1810, they both left England permanently, as it were, for the Mediterranean and Middle East. And fittingly, Malta um, was the first port of call for Lady Hester, Miss Williams, and Dr. Marion. After spending a little while there, Lady Hester decided to leave Malta and Miss Williams behind in July 1810, and Elizabeth stayed on for a while with her sister and her family at Malta. A letter from Dr. Marion to Miss Williams dated 1813, so several years after the two women had become separated, gives a deeper insight into Elizabeth's unusual relationship with Lady Hester Stanhope, and it also seems to imply that Elizabeth was not happy at Malta. He says, Lady H, Lady Hester, laments much to find that in your letter you manifest a peevishness and discontentedness with your situation at Malta. You do wrong, for there is not a moment that she does not speak with you with the, of, of you with the same tenderness and affection as if you were her child. Again, this obvious kind of speaking of the girls as her children. After over five years of separation, Miss Williams was more than ready to leave Malta and return to Lady Hester Stanhope. Um, so by March 1816, Lady Hester had something to cheer her spirits. Dr. Marion said, he writes, quote, In the middle of March of this year, Lady Hester received information that Miss Williams, a young person strongly attached to her, had ventured from Malta to Cyprus in a vessel alone on purpose to join her. Miss W. owed her education and the care of her younger years to, prote to the protection of Mr. Pitt. Lady Hester afterwards took her near her person, and she left England with her ladyship in 1810. At Malta, she found her sister married to an officer of the commissariat, with whom, at Lady Hester's departure from that island, she remained. But her attachment was so great to her protectress that after residing at Malta several years, she determined to follow her into the east. She accordingly embarked on, on board an Italian merchant vessel and alone braved the hazards of a voyage which proved particularly distressing, for the autumnal gales were so violent that the ship sprung a dangerous leak, and the captain was obliged to put into roads to refit. 
Here, Ms. Williams remained two or three months while the ship was found to be much damaged and underwent a thorough repair. They sailed from Rhodes at the commencement of the new year, and the captain named Fenugia was a man of violent language and conduct so that his crew, which was composed of very bad subjects, mutinied. The two parties came to blows more than once, and Miss Williams, oppressed with seasickness and lying in her cot, from which every moment, uh, from which she was unable to move, often heard upon deck the clashing of swords and thought every moment that murder was perpetuating. At length, they reached Cyprus, where some of the crew were put into prison, and other men being shipped, they crossed to Beirut in the middle of March. Now, Miss Williams had undergone a protracted sea voyage, delays due to a leaking ship, then mutiny on the board the ship once it did set sail, intense violence and dreadful exhaustion, but finally she reached Lady Hester. Um, from this point, uh, Elizabeth and Lady Hester had a long history together, and they were very close, um, particularly after the death of Pitt, when Lady Hester was very vulnerable, uh, very isolated, and shunned by society. By 1816, Elizabeth was Hester's only continuity to the past, her only continuity to England. Very much she was out of touch with the rest of her family. Uh, from the time of Elizabeth's return in 1816 until her tragic death at the age of 42 in 1827, she remained with her, quote, protectress. Lady Hester survived, albeit in declining health, until 1839. In a curious end note to this tale, Marian, uh, Dr. Marion mentions many years later in 1859, a small lock of Mr. Pitt's hair afterwards given by Elizabeth to me when she joined Lady Hester in the East. Elizabeth had carried Mr. Pitt's lock of hair all the way from England to Malta to the Middle East. She had it in her possession for over a decade before entrusting it at un some unspecified time to Dr. Marion. Elizabeth also left her leather trunk marked E.W., Elizabeth Williams, with its sole contents being Mr. Pitt's state gown of black silk with gold lace in the hands of Colonel James Stanhope, which was a half-brother of Lady Hester Stanhope, when she left England with Lady Hester in 1810. It's particularly interesting that Pitt's state robe was to be found amongst Elizabeth Williams' possessions and not Lady Hester Stanhope's. Um, the gown remained in England with Colonel James Stanhope, and it was the same one later used by British, prime, uh, British politician Benjamin Day Israeli. Uh, there was also speculation, interestingly, regarding the parentage of the Williams sisters in the early 1870s from two grandsons of Louisa Jane Williams. Her grandsons both wrote at separate points to the fifth Earl Stanhope, who was a biographer of Pitt's um, life, the life of Pitt in the early 1860s, asking him for more information about their grandmother's and her sister Elizabeth's parentage. The men were living in uh, two completely different countries, England and India, um, but they had both been told through a family tradition about the affinity between William Pitt the Younger and the girls. So in July 1873, C.T. Moverly Bell, a maternal grandson of Louisa, first wrote uh, to Earl Stanhope at Shevening saying, I am the grandson of a certain Mrs. David, who as Miss Williams was taken out to Malta by Lady Hester Stanhope. It has been asserted that this Miss Williams and a sister who died unmarried, Elizabeth, were the natural children of William Pitt the Younger by a lady whose name is unnecessary, it is unnecessary to mention. Moberly Bell seemed to think that Stanhope would be able to give him more details. However, if he was unable to obtain information from Stanhope, he would allow the matter to remain in oblivion. Stanhope responded quickly to Bell, writing he had heard about the tale elsewhere, but it had never attained any general circulation. Stanhope emphatically told Bell to let the matter drop. 
Stanhope was aware of the assertion, but he was unwilling to give any more information about the Williams sisters' parentage. Now, the fifth Earl Stanhope was born in January 1805, making him only a year old when Pitt died in 1806, but it's obvious from what he writes to Bell that this tale was circulated privately throughout his family. Louisa Williams went to Malta to be married in 1807, and Lady Hester Stanhope permanently left to England around the time Earl Stanhope was five years old, so he did not personally ever know his aunt or the Williams sisters. It seems Stanhope's entreaty for Bell to drop the subject was not enough to quench Bell's curiosity, though. Mobley Bell responds to Stanhope, telling him that this information was widely known in his family, and he was aware of a cover-up. An informant apparently told Moberly Bell that this information regarding the Williams sisters' true parentage was suppressed. He writes that, quote, my informant distinctly stated that in an interview with your lordship, I think it was about two years ago, you not only admitted the truth of the story, but supplied the name of the lady in question, adding that it had appeared in the original edition of your work um, and been suppressed uh, in subsequent editions at the request of the W family, unquote. Now, who was the W family? He doesn't mention this. As Stanhope openly admitted to hearing of the tale, Mobley Bell once again presses for information. But as you alluded to a former occasion when you heard the story, I am anxious to ascertain whether your informant in the first instance was identical to mine. Unquote. He ends his second letter by requesting any information Stanhope has about the antecedents of the Williams sisters, particularly Miss David, who was his grandmother. But their, co their correspondence ends abruptly and rather tersely when Stanhope responds saying, I do not know where I first heard this tale and I'm not going to give you any, any more information. I'm paraphrasing, but that's exactly what he said. Um, the declaration that Pitt potentially fathered illegitimate children would have been shocking news. It's hard to believe that Stanhope could have conveniently forgotten where he heard the story given its nature. Perhaps he was concealing information from Mr. Mobley Bell in order to keep it hush-hush. It definitely seemed as though he wanted the matter dropped. One grandson writing to Stanhope regarding the parentage of the Williams sisters is enough. However, the very next year, another grandson of Louisa also wrote to Earl Stanhope asking the same questions. This time, Major C.D. Dodd wrote from Bombay, India in 1874, saying he believed that Stanhope was the only person now living able to give any information. He writes to Stanhope that in page 17, volume one of Lady Hester Stanhope's memoirs published in 1846 and edited by her physician, Dr. Marion, there is as follows, quote, I shall burn all and send Williams to Malta with a note to be paid the first when Lady Banks dies, for I have never paid her expenses here to Mr. David. In page three, volume one of the same memoirs, Miss Williams is described as having been brought up in Mr. Pitt's family. And then he goes on to say, all I desire to know now is what was the parentage of Miss Williams, who was her father, and who was her mother. I believe you to be the only person now living capable of telling me as you are the author of the life of Mr. Pitt. I think you acknowledge I am justified in seeking this information which for many years past I have endeavored to attain when I tell you that I am the eldest living descendant of Miss Williams' only sister, Mrs. David, who is my maternal grandmother, and uh, her daughter having married the late Reverend Charles Dodd, my father, and the eldest son of the Reverend James Dodd, the well-known master of Westminster School about a century ago. I believe both Lady Hester Stanhope and Mr. Pitt must have been well aware of the parentage of the Miss Williams. One girl was in Mr. Pitt's house the period of his demise. Both girls were taken out to the east by Lady Hester at Malta. One Louisa married Mr. John David, and a copy of the marriage certificate, which I have seen, does not give the names of her parents. Would you also, if able to do so, kindly inform me who is the Lady Banks mentioned by, by Lady Hester in her correspondence and what was her connection to Miss Williams? My half-brother, Mr. C. Bell, some time ago, dressed you on the same subject of a rumor of Miss 
William's affinity to Mr. Pitt, unquote. Major Dodd also believed um, that there was a connection, but again, Stanhope writes back to him, telling him to drop it, and unlike his cousin, Mr. Moberly Bell, Dodd acknowledges what Stanhope says, and the matter is consigned to oblivion. In the absence of more information, we can only guess what the actual truth may have been. This is um, Elizabeth uh, Williams never married or had any children. What is particularly intriguing is that two grandsons of Louisa Jane and clearly other members of their family, uh, including an informant, which is not named, believed that Pitt was the natural father of the girls. The lady in question was never directly named, although it appears that the grandsons of Louisa Jane Williams knew her name, despite the fact that they do not directly name her in their letters. Also highly interesting is the fact that Sanhope openly admits to Bell that he knew of the tale. This indicates that it was known by other members of the Stanhope family. If this report is true, that Pitt was the natural father of the Williams sisters, it completely contravenes traditional theories on the life and particularly the sexuality of William Pitt the Younger. It would also help to explain why Lady Hester was so close to the girls, they would have been her first cousins. She, never, she was never close to her two sisters um, in the same, not even close. Uh, to, to the same sort of capacity. Um, whatever the exact nature of their connection, there was a lifelong mutual fondness between Lady Hester Stanhope and these two girls. Um, Lady Hester's physician, Dr. Marion, of course, goes on to write her posthumous memoirs after her death. Dr. Marion knew a great deal um, about the close bond and long-term companionship of Lady Hester and Miss Williams. Um, what more did he know and not include in his memoirs? What more was written and potentially destroyed? Hence the significance of Lady Hester's I shall burn all comment to Dr. Marion. Thank you.